Due to human malfunction, the first 10 minutes of this lesson are missing. The passage of scripture we are studying is 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 9. In his expansion of the Decalogue, God made it clear what he meant by justice, and we read this in chapter 23 of Exodus, beginning at verse 1. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man <clears throat> to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. In other words, help him get the animal going. You shall not pervert justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge. And do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you were also strangers in the land of Egypt. It's quite clear what God meant by justice. And this is exactly what Joel and Abijah were not doing. They were accepting a bribe in direct contradiction to the word of God. So by publicly and flagrantly disobeying God's clear statement in the law, these two men, Joel and Abijah, were putting themselves in the way of divine judgment. Now since these two men were so far away from Ramah, Samuel probably had heard little about the problems down there. He wasn't hearing about these activities. He may have heard a rumor here and there, but he had no direct line, no telephone, of course, or any way to have connection with his two sons. And since, of course, we're told that he was old, again, whatever that means, he may not have felt like trotting all the way down there to, to uh, Beersheba to check up on his two sons. After all, it was 57 miles one way, and he'd have to walk or ride an animal the whole way. And so certainly he was not doing that. He wasn't checking up on his two sons. However, when the elders of Israel who lived in that area finally could take it no more, they went to Ramah to confront Samuel. Obviously, they had already been thinking very much about this situation, and they had already been thinking about how to remedy the situation before they ever got to Samuel. Because they told him the problem. They said, your sons are taking bribes. They're perverting justice. So, you know, they're, they're not worthy to take your place. So we've got a thought for you. <laughs> we think we ought to have a king. They mistakenly thought that the days of Samuel were numbered and that he was being old might not live very long. Well, we discover as we go through the book, of course, that he not only anoints Saul, but he lives through virtually all of Saul's, almost all of Saul's, kingdom. Saul was king for 40 years and anoints David. Of course, he anoints David before Saul's kingship is finished, but nevertheless, Samuel has quite a few years left in him that they were not counting on at this particular time. And since they believed that his sons were unfit to replace him, they asked that Samuel would anoint a king over Israel 
so that they could be like the surrounding nations. We don't want to be looked upon as oddballs any longer with no king. We want to have a king like the surrounding nations. This request was like a bolt out of the blue to Samuel. It shocked him right down to his sandals. We're told in the scripture that this was displeasing to him. Actually, the word there is evil. To him, this was an evil request. It was not a godly request. It was a God-denying request. So what did Samuel do? Immediately say, go away, you guys are fools. I'm not going to pay attention to this. This is all wrong. No. What does Samuel do? He does not reject their request right out of hand. Instead, he does a very wise thing. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He takes it to the Lord in prayer. And in this, Samuel is a powerful example to us. I think sometimes we're too quick to react in situations. We're too quick to try to find an answer without really looking to God for the wisdom and direction we need. Um, we, we sing the song, or at least we used to, about taking it to the Lord in prayer. Uh, that is a crucial thing to do on a constant basis. We need to take everything to the Lord in prayer because God only is wise enough to know what to do. He would have been fully justified, at least in his own mind, to not even entertain their thought, to, to just say, you guys are off the wall. There's no way we're going to have a king in Israel because God had said that he is king in Israel. But rather wisely, he decided to seek the Lord before he responded to these men. And it's a good thing he did because I think he was surprised at God's answer. After all, the Lord had said and made it very clear, I am king in Israel. I, the Lord, am king in Israel. But he told Samuel to yield to their request. And he gives the reason. He says, it is because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I think it's important to read into this response that God gives to Samuel because it's very enlightening to us. Uh, from this response, I think we can understand why did Samuel think this request was evil? Well, of course, I think we would assume that he thought it was evil because he was jealous of God's position and God's character. He was jealous on behalf of God. God is king and nobody else is going to be king. But from God's response, we can see that he was also concerned about himself. I am the Shofat, but now they want a king. If they want a king, a king would be higher than a Shofat. They're asking me to get out of the way. They're asking me to step down and to appoint somebody else to be in authority over Israel. That was uh, an attack on his own record and his own prestige. He had served Israel well. He was a good priest. He was a good judge. And through him, God had delivered Israel from the Philistines. Of course, this was 25, 30 years later. Maybe they'd forgotten what God had done through him. But now he's being asked to anoint a king. And to Samuel, it was like a slap in the face. Yes, he was older, but he was still quite capable of serving as Shofat. And he would do so for many years yet. Oh, yes, he would anoint Saul as king. But we all know from our other reading that we have done, I'm sure, that uh, Saul was something less than the best king that Israel would, uh, would ever have. The whole question 
of who might be the next leader in Israel might never have been raised if Samuel had not appointed his sons to serve as deputy judges under him in Beersheba and for the people to discover that his sons were not of the character of Samuel and thinking as they thought at least that the son should inherit the position which was not the way it had happened historically nor in, in God's economy and therefore Samuel is somewhat responsible for it himself. From the day that Moses led Israel out of Egypt to the day that this request was made that we read in the seventh verse of this particular chapter, Israel had always been led by a charismatic leader that what, which means gifted, who had been specially called, specially anointed, and specially empowered to do the job of leadership. And, and you can think about it. There's Moses, and there's Joshua, and then the judges as we read about them through the book of Judges, all the way up to Samuel. Nobody was elected. They were chosen by God. <laughs> this was absolutely unique. In history, there is no other nation down through the course of history where the choice of leaders has been as it was for Israel during this particular time period. And what this did, of course, was serve as a testimony as to the power of God to lead a nation. However, if Israel was to be governed by a human king, she would be like all the other nations of their Near East, which is what, of course, the elders said they wanted. They want to be like the other nations. We don't want to be the oddball nation in this part of the world. But of course, to do so would drastically reduce their witness because there was a witness in being led by God. Because as the nation was led by God's uh, anointed leader and followed him in that way, there was an expression of the eminence of God, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, -E, which means the presence of God with us, God with us, Emmanuel, that idea as opposed to God simply being transcendent, way up there and gone like he is to Islam, but to be here with us. And, and they, would, they would demonstrate the reality of, of God present with them in a, in a unique way. And also, of course, the possibility of a, of a personal relationship with God. You, you go through looking at the, at the uh, pagan nations or the pagan religions around the world, and whoever talks of a, of a personal relationship with the God Oh, I, I woke up this morning and I had a little conversation with, uh, you know, Ooga Booga up there. And Ooga Booga told me that uh, this is what I should do today. No, they have to go through smoke and incantations and uh, hallucinations in order to get some kind of idea from, from their God. So the idea of a, of a walk, which is, of course, what you and I have, and, and that walk is what testifies to those around us as to the reality of our faith. You and I go through the same trials and tribulations other people do, and yet with a difference in how we respond to that. And that is, is very, very significant, I think. I didn't bring the newsletter with me this morning, but Elizabeth Elliott uh, puts out a newsletter and, uh, once a month, and uh, she um, often writes articles along this line, talking about uh, how people go through these, Christians go through these tragedies, and yet because in it all their faith remains, that is a witness to all. One, she mentioned one family where they were going in a bus someplace, and, and this couple with their four children, 
and the bus was in a collision with another vehicle, and two of their four children were killed in the collision. And later, people were saying, well, the, the couple need to go to therapy for anger, you know, because they certainly are angry against God about this. And, and when they heard about this, they said, we're not angry with God. I mean, God is sovereign, and, and God has chosen this route. Our love for Him has not diminished. And of course, that's how a Christian couple differs from the world. A true Christian couple. I mean, there are Christian couples who, in, in a circumstance like that, might, might be angry and, and, and so forth. That, that can happen. But the, the grace of God is exhibited in this. Contrast that with the article, I don't know if you looked at it in the newspaper yesterday on the religion page by Reverend William Stiegel, pastor of the United Methodist Church, who basically said a tragedy like that happens because God is not strong enough to keep it from happening. He said God is not all-powerful. God is, God is not flesh, and so God can't, he does, God doesn't use brute force. He just tries to persuade. And that's why evolution has taken so long, because it takes a long time to persuade people to do the right thing. So that's not the God I find in here. Of course, he's quoting Alfred Whitehead, <laughs> Alfred North Whitehead, gospel according to Alfred North Whitehead, who is an English philosopher who could come back right now and tell a totally different story of what he told um, while he was alive. <laughs> yeah, right. Just like Bertrand Russell and a few others would have a wholly different uh, take on the whole thing now if they could come back and uh, give insight. I, I'd rather much follow what the scripture says than what some uh, philosopher says because not our brains today. In verse 8, God was saying to Samuel that the reason Israel is rejecting you, Samuel, is that you are my flesh and blood representative. And because they are rejecting me, they reject you, but the, original, the origin of their rejection is me, not you. Each time Israel, in its history, rejected God, he disciplined them, and he brought them back to himself. And, and you read that, that you know, up and down course of Israel through history. God, God had a perfect plan for his people, Israel. But when they chose another plan, did he forsake them? Did he say, okay, through with you guys, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to take this Canaanite tribe of Hivites over here and I'm going to make them my people? No, God didn't do that. God didn't forsake them when they forsook him. Instead, he brought them back to himself, but he worked with them within the circumstances that they had brought on themselves because of the discipline that came. For example, Israel turned away from God, and so God brought Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar carried Jews off into captivity in Babylon, and God spoke to them in Babylon. God didn't say, okay, well, you guys are turned back to me, so I'm going to put you right back where you were before and build the temple back up. No, God didn't do that. God said, you are reaping the fruit of your folly, but I will work with you in it. You are responsible for these circumstances, but I will work with you within those circumstances, and I will draw you to myself. And so it would be in the days of Samuel. And what this does is further demonstrate the patience and the mercy of God. How many times would Israel turn against God and God draw them back? Over and over and over again. I don't know. I haven't tried to count the number of times because I'm sure they're not even all recorded. But Jesus said, when he was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? 
70 times 7. And so what we have is this principle illustrated throughout Scripture. In verse 9 of this passage, we read that God instructed Samuel, listen to the request of the Israelites for a king and grant them that request. In other words, you will be choosing a king on their behalf. However, when it was quite evident that the leaders of Israel were only thinking of the positive aspects. We want a king who's going to give us good judging. We're, we want a king who's going to lead us into battle. We're, we're tired of being uh, just a motley group of people when, when there's a battle. We've got to kind of recruit everybody and get together and try to go fight a battle. They were only looking at the positive aspects, and God said to Samuel, warn them of the negative aspects because they are far more pervasive than the positive aspects. Well, let's see what Samuel said. Verse 10, 1 Samuel 8. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest, to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and of your vineyards and of your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give, his officers and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then when you cry out in that day, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, then you will do that, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice, appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Samuel heard directly from the Lord. He went to the Lord in prayer. God spoke to him. On the basis of God's words to him, he was able to boldly proclaim this message which we just read. He told the Israels that the cost of kingship would be high and that one day they would regret this request. Samuel's specific warnings, I think, as he listed various in things and he said, well, you know, we're, he, the people are going to be taken for this and that and the other thing. I think these specific warnings came from his own knowledge of what was going on in these surrounding nations that they wanted to be like. But God enhanced his understanding through the inspiration of the, of the Spirit. God gave him specific things he could say in a powerful and positive way. He points out, for example, that your young men and your young women are going to be conscripted, drafted for both the military and for domestic service of the monarchy. So you, you're counting on your son to uh, take over your farmstead? You're counting on your son to help you plow the field? Sorry, 
He's going to be drafted into the military. You, you expect your daughter, you're going to marry off to some rich little guy over here and, and have a nice little... Ra- nope, the king's going to take her and she's going to be a baker in, in the royal household. Secondly, the best lands will be confiscated. What's he going to do with the best lands? He's going to give them to his bureaucratic appointees. Thirdly, they would be heavily taxed. They would be heavily taxed in order to support this increasingly oppressive government. They had no government at the time we're talking about other than tribal government. They just had a government of each tribe, a a mayor, if you will, of each city. They didn't have a national government. So a whole layer of, of oppressors was removed. A whole layer of needing taxes was gone. So they're actually inviting this to happen. Samuel warned them, the day was going to come when you will cry out to the Lord for relief and he will turn a deaf ear. Just as they had had to learn to live with the Canaanites that were in the land because they had not trusted God to drive the Canaanites out, so they were going to have to learn to live with this government that they are so unwisely and foolishly choosing this day. God would not change that. When we do stupid things, God doesn't always take us back to square one and start over. It's not like that movie, I don't remember what it was called, but where it kept going back to midnight and the day kept starting over again. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. All I remember is some movie where which kept they kept starting over again. God does not do that. If we blow it, we live with it, and God works with us within it. But we, you know, we suffer the consequences, and uh, that's the way it was going to be. Well, there's uh, another passage of scripture, but I don't have time to read it this morning. That kind of ties what they're doing in with with who we are today. And that will, I think, be good for us to note. One of the things you discover through your study of history that so many kingdoms and empires have risen and fallen down through the course of history simply on the basis of the fact that the government got hugely bureaucratic, it, the tax, taxes got too high, and the people just wouldn't tolerate it anymore. Because if people have to choose between feeding their family or paying the government taxes, you've come to the place where revolution is inevitable. And that's, of course, what he is talking about here.